All right, let me, can I get serious for a second? I know uh, I'd rather make light of things. I'm a seven on the Enneagram, so I want to avoid pain and make jokes. But uh, I feel like if you've been paying attention to world events this week, there's just, I mean, just absolute horror happening in the Middle East. And uh, I'm not here to make any political statements or to, you know, be a, you know, trying to put the dots together in the Bible to figure out when Jesus is coming back. That's not, I don't, I don't do stuff like that. Um, but what I do want to say is there's a lot of suffering people in the world right now. And um, I feel like we are called to pray. We're called to pray for people who are allies and people who are enemies. We're especially called to pray for people who are suffering. And uh, for me, the prayer has just been that uh, there would be mercy and peace. And I know that those things when someone wrongs you, and especially when someone wrongs you for what is essentially 2,000 years, you go back and forth wronging each other, that the only resolution for anything like that would be an absolute miracle of a God-sized proportion. Um, so that's been my prayer this week, is that the suffering would relent, that people would find forgiveness in their hearts, that peace would be a possibility um, and that God would do what only God could do, bring healing and bring mercy to places that seem impossible, that just to, to situations that seem impossible. So if you would, I'd just like to start our, our time here in prayer. Um, and Jesus, help us, help us to uh, find words to, to engage you in prayer over these incredibly important events that have happened this last year or this last week. God, we know that there are it seems like it seems like most normal people in this conflict are victims. And I pray for a relenting mercy. And I pray for peace, God, and I pray that you would help uh, sides that seem so against each other to find forgiveness and to find ways forward, God, that you would change hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. God, that you would intervene, that you would move the pieces on the board, that, God, it would be you who bring about uh, the absolute miracle that would be needed uh, in this situation. Um, and God, help us to know what to pray. Help us to know what to think and how to process this. God, I pray that you would help us to uh, associate our prayers with those who are suffering. You came and you suffered for us. You showed us what it looks like to be the suffering servant, and you are close to those who are in difficult moments, who are in suffering times, God, who are in the worst spots that you draw near to people in those moments. And I, I pray for just a breakthrough in the hearts of every key leader involved, God, that you would uh, de-escalate this situation and that there would be mercy and peace and God, that you would uh, take care of those who find themselves today in a horrible situation. Help us not to get uh, immune, not to get lackadaisical, not to stop paying attention, not to not let it affect us, God. Just help us to stay engaged and in prayer, trusting in you, looking for what we can do, engaging people in a way that helps. Uh, God, would you use us in the midst of this difficulty? We trust you. We know you are in control. We also know this world is broken. And so we pray, God, that it would be a miracle, that you would 
bring about peace in this situation. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't, I don't know how you, you process stuff like that. I always feel like I, my words are inadequate, and the only thing I know to do is to go to the one who's in control and ask him to intervene. So I hope that that's been your heart this week. It has been mine. Um, so today we're going to see, in Acts chapter 23, we're going to see Paul start to be moved around uh, and start to make his way to Rome. And you, you believe, I think if you've ever been in a situation before where you could look back completely and see kind of what God was doing through the whole thing, you might understand that he was sort of moving the pieces on the board in your life uh, for a long period of time. And at any point in that movement, there was like, you couldn't particularly see the whole picture and you couldn't necessarily know what was coming, uh, but you could look back on it later. I think that's kind of what's happening with Paul here. There's going to be a little bit of uh, more of like a history and geographical kind of bend to chapter 23. And then in chapter 24, we're going to get to um, uh, just kind of our response to the gospel that Paul presents to uh, sort of a powerful person. So we're going to be in 23 and 24. Again, in the app, there are fill-ins and all the verses are in there. If you're in a pew Bible, it's page 950-959. That's what it was. So uh, follow along with me. I'm going to kind of get us going because it's a lot of Scripture today. I'm going to start with uh, chapter 23. So Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest. For it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin. So Paul finds himself in front of the, um, this group of Jewish leaders. They are... Uh, basically making a case against him. Um, and he finds himself uh, kind of making a case or trying to talk with them about what the real issues are. And you're going to see what Paul does is he throws a hand grenade in the middle of the room. Now, not everybody on the Sanhedrin agreed about everything that they were kind of in charge of. They had differences. And Paul knows what those differences are. And he's about to take something, uh, a, a conversation about something separate and kind of create chaos in the midst of the, the Sanhedrin and the situation that he finds himself in, right? So, uh, and, and we're going to see here in a, sec, in a second that everything that Paul talks about in this section, it kind of falls on the resurrection of, of the dead. Verse, verse 7. So he says, uh, sorry, verse 6. My brothers, I am a Pharisee, descendant of Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Now, the difference here is that the Pharisees in the room and the Sadducees in the room were two separate groups. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead and believed in angels and believed in sort of the spiritual realm. And the Sadducees were sort of more, uh, more anti 
spiritual stuff. They believed in God's word. They believed in their place as Abraham's offspring. They believed God had a special relationship with them, but they weren't kind of going down the route that God was still active in their world spiritually, that he was for resurrection of dead or would, there would be a resurrection of dead. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in spiritual stuff. So Paul just kind of lights the grenade and throws it into the room. And I want you to know everything Paul talks about does actually fall on the resurrection of the dead. Right? Like if you don't believe that the, the dead can be resurrected, then you don't believe that Jesus came and lived the life that he lived and went to the cross and was resurrected from the dead. It all falls upon that. The gospel doesn't work unless Jesus comes back to life. And I think sometimes we like we have trouble. We we read like a we read like a, a miracle somewhere in the scripture and we're like, no way that happened. No way that this guy's foot, you know, gets fixed and he gets up and walks out of here. There's no way that this leper gets healed of the, the leprosy they have. And they, they, there's no way that... And yet, if you're a Christian, you believe in the resurrection of the dead. I'm not sure why we get hung up on miracles when there is a miracle that everything hangs on. Whether you believe that miracle or not is the, the core of what it means to be a Christ follower. You either believe, right, that you're following somebody who made all this up, or you're following somebody who's the only person who's been resurrected from the dead, or the only person who's been connected to a resurrection, because Lazarus also. Right? Like, Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the most important moment in all of history, and what you believe about it, everything falls on that. The gospel is true or not based on what you believe about it. And I love, you know, kind of like what, uh, I believe it was an old preacher who used to say, like, um, something to the effect of, like, you know, you're trying to figure out who to follow. Just follow anyone who's come back to life from the dead. Whoever that is, just follow them. And if there's a new person that comes back to life from the dead, we're going to have to have a serious conversation about what God's doing in that moment, because that'll be someone else to listen to and pay attention to. But so far, it's really only been Jesus, right? That's the story here. And so Paul throws this very important piece of information into the room and he knows what it's going to do to them and he loves to create the chaos in this moment with these two groups of people that believe different things. So he says, my brother, I'm a Pharisee. You know, and Pharisees get a bad name. They get a bad rap because they were very overly religious in Jesus' time, but Jesus was a Pharisee. Paul comes from and is a Pharisee. The Pharisees are the closest thing that we have today to, to a sect of Judaism that would look a little bit like what we believe. Like they took the scripture seriously. They took God at his word. They were very thoughtful about how they handled God's word and how they lived. I would say most of the time when we're looking at who we represent in these stories, we represent the Pharisees. Now, you can see that the Pharisees get way out of whack and become overly religious and that becomes a problem, right? That becomes a problem in that would be a problem in our church. If anyone was being overly religious, it would still be a problem. But often they get a bad rap. These are people that are most faithful to God's word. And Jesus himself would have been part of the Pharisaical tradition. And Paul was part of this Pharisaical tradition. And so we find ourselves in that same kind of category. It's not a bad thing to be a Pharisee, it's a bad thing to be an overly religious Pharisee. You mix in enough religion, right? It's going to be a problem. So he, he calls on the Pharisees in the room. He says, my brothers, I'm a Pharisee, descendant from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. 
When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. Look how quickly they changed their tune. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him to the barracks. So Paul throws it in, this, just the resurrection of the dead, and all of a sudden there's a giant fight between these two groups of people, and you can see how important this topic is, how important it is what you believe in this, because they were willing to separate and fight over their belief in the resurrection of the dead. We talked about this the last couple of weeks, that there are things that we unify around and things that we will be willing to lose unity over, right? This is one of those things. If you're, if you're on the side of Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, we don't have unity. And that was what was going on here. Unity in the church is often very fragile. That's one of your fill-ins there if you're following along. Unity is so fragile. And there are times in our church where we would be willing to split over certain theologies, certain things we believe about God. But most of the time, we're fighting for unity. And I want you to know, like, you probably don't fully grasp the difficulty of keeping and creating unity over the past three or four years, given political seasons, given COVID. I want to say that most of you guys were amazing at staying unified even when you disagreed with somebody, you still respected them, you still loved them, you still made room for them to have a different viewpoint than you, right? I think in our small groups, in fact, I know certain small groups where I know some of the people that were in the small group, and I had personal conversations with different people who were in the small group, and they believed the exact opposite thing about certain things that were very, seemed very important at the time, and yet found a way to stay connected and to stay in relationship and to love each other and to serve each other and to be part of a group together, even though they didn't agree on every single political thing or they didn't agree on every single social thing that was happening. They found ways to honor the person above their belief. That's what we're called to do most of the time. But there are things that we are called to divide over. This is one of them. And there's been an attack on Jesus and the cross and what God was doing in that moment when he punished Jesus on our behalf. And there's been theologies that have kind of come in and become very popular recently that attack the idea that someone had to pay for sin in the first place and attack the idea that there's personal responsibility for each of us and that all of us will someday be in heaven because God is this very kind, loving, merciful sort of, and and he won't punish sin. He'll just sort of make way for everyone that Jesus didn't need to die on the cross, that he didn't need to pay for our sins. Like, Those are things where the gospel does not work if we disagree on what is going on there. We have to agree on that. We have to agree that we have sinned, we are personally responsible for the things that we have done in our lives, that Jesus lived a sinless life, that he goes to the cross, that he pays the price for our sin, for all sin, for all time, for all people who are willing to accept the free gift of salvation, and he offers that to us. And when we are humble enough to ask for his forgiveness and to receive his gift, then we find ourselves on the right side of that relationship with Jesus where we're restored and made right in God's eyes. We have to agree on that. 
And that's what Paul throws out in the middle. That's what causes the problem. This is what Paul continues to stick to and to make the main thing. And so Paul must be kind of feeling pretty rough. Like he has fought his way to Jerusalem and everyone has told him don't do it and he caused no problems when he got there and he tried to stay under the radar and he tried to do things that created peace between him and other people that were against him and he still finds himself in the middle of a riot. Everywhere he goes, he's in the middle of a riot. Okay? And here's what God does in response to this really terrible day in Paul's life. It's like God knows what Paul needs in this moment. And this is all he needs to give him. Look at verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. This is what Paul needed to hear. And I think sometimes when we hear the end, right, when we know who wins in the end, who's in control, who's in charge of all this, and we hear the end, we can get through whatever it is that we need to find ourselves getting through. Right now, Paul has just been given basically a lease to go and say whatever he wants to whoever he's brought in front of, to make the gospel the main thing in every situation he finds himself in in the next however long it takes him to get to Rome, because he knows that God has just promised him that he will communicate the gospel in Rome. So he says, tomorrow when I wake up and I go before whoever it is I go before and I get a chance to talk about whatever it is that I get to talk about, I don't have to be afraid because I know it doesn't end tomorrow. I know that my life is not over tomorrow. The crowd does not win tomorrow. I don't get mistreated and and lost tomorrow. Right? I'm going to make my way to Rome. Now, once I get to Rome, all bets are off. Right? Like, I should be, when I get to Rome, finally, a little bit worried. Because he hasn't really told me anything past that. Right? Like, I, now, I'm, now I know when I get to Rome, okay, God, he's only promised me to this point. But he's promised me all the way to there. And so he gives Paul courage. He basically says, hey, we're going to get to Rome. Right? You can have courage. And Paul is kind of like a new man. I mean, I think anytime we're looking at these, these kind of stories and we're like trying to figure out how these people were able to stand up with such incredible courage, I mean, look at it. God drew near to him and gave him what he needed in the moment. Because that's what he needed in the moment. Paul's probably depressed, having a hard time, questioning everything, asking God, did I mess it up? Did I miss it? Was there something I should have done or said? Did I do your gospel justice? Should I have brought up resurrection of the dead? That seemed to set everyone off. Maybe that, was a, maybe that was a good thing. Maybe it was a bad thing. He's probably processing the whole thing in his mind. And here comes God standing close to him saying, hey, take courage, keep sharing the gospel. You're going to make it to Rome. I'm going to skip ahead to chapter 24 here, but I'm going to tell you what happens here. So Paul, that very night when he's connecting with God and God's telling him to take courage and he's drawing near to him, which would have been awesome. I wonder what that looked like. It doesn't give us specifically what that was. Was that an angel? Was that, I mean, how did it feel to have God close to you? And what was the actual way that happened? Come on, Luke, a little bit more detail. Um, As he's doing this, there are a group of people within the city who are saying, okay, we're going to make a covenant tonight with everybody here, and we're going to decide that Paul's going to die before we eat and drink. So 40 of them get together, and they make a decision that they're going to kill Paul as soon as they possibly can before their next meal, okay? And so at that time, Paul's nephew, sister's son, I believe that's what it says, 
his nephew, uh, which we don't really know anything about Paul's family. So this is one of the only, only conversations about who was in his family. He guess he had a sister, her son. Uh, her sister catches wind of, his sister catches wind of it, sends his son to go tell. The son then tells somebody in the authority in Jerusalem, and they say, okay, we know this is going to turn into a riot. We've seen this happen before. We know the script here. Everybody gets all upset. Something happens. It sets off a huge thing, and then we've got to squash this. So what we're going to do is we're going to take Paul, and we're going to take him away in the middle of the night, and we're going to travel as far as Caesarea, and we're going to take him to the next major Roman uh, person, and we're going to make it that guy's problem and get him out of our city. And so in the middle of the night, they whisk Paul away, and he finds himself the next day in Caesarea, uh, in front of a different leader, and that leader basically is where we pick up the story in verse in chapter 24. So chapter 24, Paul's trial before Felix. Felix is the guy who is the uh, Roman representative for the area. Felix, just to give you a little bit of background on him, was a, born a slave and was an incredibly brutal, not just at all, not a very just leader. So not somebody who you'd be excited about seeing, not a reasonable person, Seems like he could be bought off, but we're going to see kind of his way of handling this whole thing. So it says, five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. And they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. And when Paul was called in, Tertullus presented this case before Felix. Tertullus is like a lawyer. He's like uh, good with words. You're going to see he's a real... He, he kisses... Felix's butt, Heine. Um, trying to think of what's appropriate to say here. Uh, so he finds himself in front of him. This is Tertullus's uh, case. He says, We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation everywhere and in every way. Most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. I mean, come on, man, right? Like, he's just buttering him up. He knows how to get to Felix. Just keep saying nice things about him, and Felix will get on your side. That's how you win here. We acknowledge this with profound gratitude, but in order not to weary you any further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. That's not exactly wrong, by the way. They're not fair riots, but he is in the middle of riots everywhere he goes. Um... Yep, He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. Come on, a ringleader? Get out of here. By the way, that word, ringleader, it's got like a real negative connotation, like this secret, nasty group of people that he is in charge of. Like, uh, no. Uh, And even tried to desecrate the temple. Didn't. Hasn't. Um, So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about these charges we are bringing against him. So he says, hey, ask him. You'll be able to verify everything that we've uh, said here. Every, Every problem that we brought up, you'll be able to verify by just speaking to him. So he says, when the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. Paul doesn't really butter him up very much, just says, hey man, I know you've been in this position for a long time. That means you're probably politically able to you know, get the power and hold on to the power, and there's probably a reason why you're in this position, and I'm just going to have respect enough to the idea that you know what you're doing, and you're probably not a dummy. right? But he's not saying anything super nice about him, because actually, Felix was kind of really nasty. He was really strong, 
and really aggressive and really difficult, and he was not somebody that you wanted to be standing in front of. Um, you can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone in the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you charges that they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. He says very clearly, I'm with Jesus. I'm okay being bold and courageous and saying that in front of you because I know this is not my last stop. I know I'm going to Rome. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and men. Think about that. He's talking about the resurrection of the dead, and he says that there will be a resurrection of both good and bad, both the righteous and the wicked. I think we need to keep our eyes on that and understand that what we're dealing with here when we talk about the resurrection is that every person has a chance to change the outcome of their eternity, that there will be an eternity for every person. You don't just die and that's the end of it. There is a resurrection and there is a chance for you to be standing in front of God making a case for why it is that you get to be part of eternity with Him. And your answer should not come from within yourself. It should be the person of Jesus that you call upon in that moment. That when God looks at you, He sees Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' sacrifice, the, the forgiveness of sins that Jesus made available to you. That's what it looks like to change your eternity and your outcome. But he says all of us will stand in front of God. All of us will have that opportunity. And if we are looking within ourselves, we are lost. That is not going to get us where we want to be. He says, So I strive to always keep a clear conscience before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and present offerings. I was ceremoniously clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, not... Uh, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there were some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state a crime that they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one thing, as I shouted, I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. He said that was the thing that started the riot, that I, that I claimed the resurrection of the dead. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. So Felix doesn't make a decision. Uh, here in verse 22, he says, When Lysias comes, the commander comes, I will decide your case. He puts it off and says, I'm not going to decide. And you'll see this in Felix. He doesn't make decisions very quickly. And he doesn't make decisions in any sort of time frame. And he kind of pushes the ball down the court always, just sort of not making a decision about what what it is that he's hearing, what it is that is in front of him. He said, I'll decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul, and he listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. 
At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. Listen, so Paul finds himself in captivity, sort of like house arrest, not like the worst dungeon in the world, but, you know, has a little bit of freedom, but is basically under house arrest and finds himself being toyed with by Felix. And it says Felix understands the followers of the way, has a Jewish wife, kind of has more connection to the gospel and to what's going on with Jesus and to the Jewish way than most other rulers that Paul's going to find himself in front of. And it says he's sort of startled by the, by the sermon that Paul preaches to him uh, over the years, which, by the way, I find to be so fascinating. This is what Paul, who finds himself in a situation where the guy who can let him go is standing in front of him, and he decides to preach these three topics, righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Uh, you do you, Paul. I, I don't think that's going to win you uh, freedom. I don't think that one's getting you out. Right? The thing about Felix is he was awful, but also it mentions Drusilla. This was his third wife. She was very young, like 19 at the time. Uh, she's actually in history. Uh, we know a little bit about her. And she was called like unbelievably beautiful, like well-known for her beauty during that time. So Felix is living large, right? He's got all the power. He's on his third wife. He's got sort of like a trophy wife situation going here. Paul goes in there and boldly proclaims righteousness. He says, hey, if you want to follow Jesus, it's going to look like you undoing some of the atrocities that you've been a part of. And it's going to look like you treating people with dignity and respect. It's going to look like you finding right standing in front of God because of Jesus and his sacrifice for you. He, pra- he, he preached to him self-control. It's going to look like you not using people to, 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 for whatever whim that you have, for whatever desire that you want to use them for. And then he preached to him, you know, the idea that he would have to be humble enough to receive the, uh, the forgiveness of sin in relationship with Jesus so he could avoid the judgment to come. Like, th- this is not a winner, Paul. This does not get you out of, out of jail. But Felix's response to it, I think, is so often the response that we have as followers of of Jesus, or people who find themselves sitting on the fence. Like, the success in God's kingdom is not linear. And I, I do think, like, it, it's sort of like we learn and we grow, and then we kind of find ourselves falling back into some bad and old habits, and then we live and we grow. But, but there's a time where you come into a relationship with Jesus where you don't necessarily have anything together, but you have to make the decision to agree that there's you have enough faith to say, I believe in Jesus and I'm going to receive what he's offering to me. Like there is a moment where you go from unsaved to saved. That threshold needs to be crossed over. And Felix is just toying with it. He's going right to the edge of the threshold, but saying, I can't let go of the things in my life that I don't want to let go of. Like all of us have a Felix in our lives. Like every one of us has somebody in our lives where when we talk to them about spiritual things, they're interested, they talk to us about it, but they don't want to make a decision. They don't want to go all in to receive what Jesus is offering them for whatever reason, they just won't make a decision. And in Felix's case, what is he doing? He's saying, you know, hey, always tomorrow, when there's a convenient time. When there's a convenient time, I'll decide to, to follow Jesus. Or he says, 
Uh, he's always got more questions. Come, tell me more. Come, tell me more. And I want you to understand, like, when you become a Christian, it doesn't mean you have no questions. Like, this is what faith looks like. Faith says, I have enough information to make a decision about the idea that I want to be with Jesus. I'm going to continue to have questions for the rest of my life. I'm going to continue to, to fight through my faith and ask questions forever. But I've got enough information right now to make a decision to follow Jesus. What else does Felix do? He says, what's in it for me? How about you give me a bribe? Right? Some of us, we just want to use God for our own benefit. We need God to make us healthy or wealthy or to answer our prayer in a certain way or give us a certain thing. We treat him like a vending machine. We put the quarter in. We push the button. We expect the thing to come out. When it hangs or doesn't come out the way that we want it to, we're ready to walk away from Jesus because we just wanted him to solve some problem in our life. And I think sometimes we can be so close and yet so far away from the gospel. You know, I've shared this before, but it, it haunts me as a pastor to think about the idea that I might preach to you and you might think you've crossed that threshold and you haven't. Like that's one of those things that when I'm having like a rough night and I'm up at three in the morning and I'm thinking about a lot of stuff, I'm thinking about, did I communicate the gospel clear enough for people to understand that there's a threshold and there is an in and there is an out? I mean, in Acts, we've seen people call on the name of Jesus in ways that used him as though he were like a, a, a magic incantation that they could use to do stuff. Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 7, right? He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the ones who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on this day, Lord, when did we, or did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And that might as well say, didn't we go to church faithfully? Didn't we give? Didn't we serve? Didn't we do all this stuff? We went to small groups. We prayed for people. We did it all in your name, Lord. We did it all in your name. We did it all in your name. And Jesus would say, then I will turn to them plainly and say, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoer. Like, you can play the game of going through the motions in religion without ever actually crossing the threshold of faith. And saying, I believe Jesus' sacrifice is the only thing that I will proclaim on the day of judgment. That what he has offered me is a free gift, but it, it, it rises and falls on whether I receive that gift whether or not I throw up my hands, I find the humility that it takes, the, the pride that gets washed away in that moment, and I say, I am a broken person who deserves a punishment for my sins, if not for Christ. Like That threshold is the first step in what it looks like to have a relationship with Jesus. And yes, you will still have questions. And yes, there will never be a better time than right now. You could say, I want to wait till tomorrow, I want to wait till later, I want to wait till another time. Stop. Don't do that. If you believe in Christ, now is the day to receive him. Right? If you believe that you should be punished for your own sin, that would be reasonable and right and righteous, then respond. It's not what's in it for me, right? It's what do I get to receive? What's been given to me freely? And I want you to just kind of process all this. As Paul is standing there 
And he keeps going back to him and sharing, and, and Felix is trying, sort of toying with him. You think, like, Paul's on his way to Rome, and he knows where he's going, but it's not linear. L- look at this. This is one of those verses where you like, it's like so sad. Like, I read this, and it crushes me. Here's Paul in house arrest, fooling around, basically giving the gospel to Felix over and over and over, and him never responding. And Paul feeling like, I don't know, I'm on the sidelines here almost. Like, what am I supposed to be doing here? And this is what it says in verse 27. When two years had passed. Paul is stuck for two years. You know what this just sort of reminds me of, cries out to, is Joseph. When the cupbearer is supposed to remember him and goes in front of the fair, in front of the, uh, the the leaders of Egypt and says, "Hey, remember me when you get into that position of power. Explain to everybody who I am and what I was able to do with these dreams. Explain to everybody who who I am, so that way they'll know." And it says, "And then the cupbearer forgot Joseph, and he was in that place for two years, two years of his life, two years for people to say, well, Paul's not being effective, things aren't going right.'" It's not working. God's not on the move there. Something For Paul to be able to sit in that moment and to know, like, hey, there's an end to this and it's going somewhere, but had to wait for two full years. Like, it's not linear. It's not always up and to the right. Things don't always go perfectly for us as Christians. But it doesn't mean God's not active. It doesn't mean that he's not in it, right? We talked about in the very beginning the idea that God's moving things around and he's doing things in your life and sometimes you can look back and see what God's doing. God is taking Paul to Rome, but he's doing it on his timeline. Paul, I'm sure, was not pleased with the idea of sitting there, stuck, having to cater to Felix for two years. But this is what God was doing. This is where God was moving Paul. And I just want to encourage you guys, if you find yourself in a time where you feel like you're on the sidelines, you feel like you're just stuck, you feel like you're not sure where things are going, I believe that God has more for you in the future. If you're not dead, God is not done. Right? Like If you have breath in your lungs and you have life, then you have a chance to continue to affect the kingdom of God. And you might see it now and think, I'm the last person who should affect the kingdom of God. I've got all kinds of problems. Things are stuck. I don't see where things are going. I'm frustrated. I find myself in a season of waiting or a season of not knowing what God's doing. God's doing something. He's at work. And we need to find that patience in those times and rely on His Spirit in those times and rely on His promises in those times to work our way through those times so we can look back later and say, well, this is what God was doing. Like, that's what it, what it looks like for us as, as Christians. Let me, let me close us in prayer here. And Jesus, even now, God, as people contemplate where they stand with you and whether or not they've crossed that threshold of faith, God, I pray that you would stir in people's hearts to move and respond to your gospel. God, you have called us to believe that your sacrifice was for us, to speak with our mouths that you are Lord, to move on from our sin and be changed by your Holy Spirit, to have the message of your gospel on our lips. God, I pray that you would use us as people who can proclaim your gospel in the places that you have put us. And for those of us that feel stuck 
that feel like we are in a prison for the last few years or months or weeks, God, would you continue to stand near us and tell us this is not the end, that there is more ahead, that we can have faith and trust that you have a plan. God, we don't always see the plan until later. I pray, God, that you would give us perspective on times when you freed us from other places where we felt like we were stuck. And would you continue to use us even in those moments where we find ourselves in between and in transition. God, most of all, would you use us as vessels, as spokesmen for your gospel and for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.